Well, Pastor Chris already mentioned New Year's resolutions in his announcements, and this is something that's on a lot of people's minds this time of the year. You know, what, what am I going to do with the coming year? What are some things I'd like to do differently? I'm thinking back on the last year. I'm looking forward to the coming year. What am I going to do differently? But I have this sense, and, and I want to sort of read your minds. You can tell me if I'm right on this or not. I have the sense that there's, there's fewer people thinking about New Year's resolutions and there's more people thinking about New Year's hopes. And probably the most common thing I'm guessing in this room that people are hoping for in 2022 is that maybe by some miracle, we could go back to normal. Am I correct? We're hoping that could, could we get back to normal sooner than later. So I, I know this crosses my mind. I'm sure it crosses your mind as well. I mean, it's one thing to have a resolution, but how about just, how about our world just getting back to normal? But what I would like to do this morning is to challenge us a little bit on that dream and that hope and ask the question, do we really want things to go back to normal? So if we re rewind the clock two years and we remember 2019, sitting in church, taking church for granted, living our comfortable lives, assuming that our charter actually means something, assuming that this is a sanctuary and a safe place, assuming that we have religious freedom, assuming that the medical establishment is all for us. If we, if we go back to that, and we then think about all that we've been taught and learned in the past two years. Do we really want to go back to that? I'm not sure I want to go back to that. Because in many respects, one of the problems in the Western church as a whole is that we've had it too easy. We've had it pretty easy. Oh, we love reading about martyrs and the persecuted church around the world and house churches in China and all these amazing Christians that have taken a stand for Christ and we often have wondered in the past, hmm, I wonder if I would be that kind of a man. But we weren't really challenged. Instead, as God has blessed us, I think to varying degrees, we've taken it for granted. We have gone about our routines and schedules. We've planned our family vacations. We have saved for retirement, perhaps. We've spent time renovating our houses, having kids, working out, trying to get fit. But I'm not sure that is God's normal for us. In fact, I'm most certain it isn't. Not that these pursuits in and of themselves are bad. Having a house is not bad. Going on vacation is not bad. Having kids is obviously not bad. But life is more than that. Those are just footnotes to our primary purpose. Much of Western Christianity isn't really normal at all and hasn't been for a long time if you compare it to biblical Christianity. Because much of Western Christianity, and I'm speaking in broad strokes today, which I think is is necessary at times, is self-serving. It's kind of comfortable. And oftentimes we, we live our lives with this notion that, well, I, I can kind of 
drift in and out of church when I want. I can drift in and out of my Bible when I want. I can drift in and out of a robust prayer life when I want. I can drift in and out of generosity when I want. I can drift in and out of a vertically minded, worship saturated life when I want. But when I'm too busy, it's fine. God doesn't really, I don't need to be that dedicated. I don't need to be that committed, do I? So in many respects, we've created a spectator sport in our churches, a sort of consumer-driven form of Christianity where we have taken God's blessings and salvation and the fact that God has rescued us. And instead of dedicating our lives to his purposes and his causes, we've kind of taken it easy. Well, perhaps God, and I happen to think he is, I can't, I would never presuppose to know the exact mind of God unless it's revealed directly in scripture. But I have a sense that God is not only judging our nation right now, but he's judging his church. And some people are learning from God's judgment and some continue to serve Baal. So I I thought studying Haggai in light of these considerations is probably a good idea. So Haggai is a book that calls us to consecrate our lives to the Lord. To be consecrated, we don't use that word very often, simply means to dedicate one's life to sacred purposes. That's what consecration essentially is about, to dedicating our lives to being set apart for sacred purposes. So find your way to Haggai. We're gonna study this over about the next five weeks or so. Haggai, if if you're having trouble finding it because I'm assuming none of you read this this morning for your morning devos. How many of you have been in Haggai lately? Right? Probably not. So if you can find the New Testament and find Matthew, the first gospel, you just have to go back three books. So Haggai is sandwiched between Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's the third last book of the Old Testament. And it's one of the 12 final books of the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets not because their message was minor, but because they were just short. They're shorter than Ezekiel and Daniel's books were, starting with Hosea and ending in Malachi. Those are called the minor prophets. This is the third from last. And we start off with a bit of a background, which is always helpful when we study a new book in the Bible. We have some circumstances. The setting is set for us. Haggai 1 Chapter one, verse one says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. So we have a date and it's all in numbers. Some of the prophets identify the months by their names. And maybe some of the more conservative ones just use numbers because they didn't want to use the paganized names that godless people had placed on months and days, etc. That's probably the reason for that. Haggai is one such prophet. So he just says, the second year of Darius the king, that's the Persian king, not, the, not Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Babylonian king, the king that came after. In the sixth month, and the first day of the month, the word of the Lord. So now we're told right out of the gates that this is divine revelation. This is not Haggai in a counseling room, 
giving his own opinion or advice on things. This is divine revelation given by God. So when you hear Haggai speak, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm hearing God speak. I need to listen up. Came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, who would have been the normal descendant that should have been sitting on the throne of Judah. Kind of the, when the, when the Babylonians came in in 586 and wiped out Judah and took their king, this would have been the guy that, in the, I think it's two or three generations down that was the rightful heir to the throne. The son of Shealtel, governor of Judah and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we have this bit of information here. We have date, circumstances, an introduction to the prophet. And we are told that this is divine revelation from God. Why study Haggai and what is his overarching message. Well, the date is important. In our modern calendar, we would date this book very specifically to August the 29th, 520 BC. So thankfully we know the exact date, August 29th, 520 BC. So if you know biblical history in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came in and deported the vast majority of Judah and Benjamin into Babylonian captivity. And as that captivity gets closer and closer to the 70 year mark, the people of God are permitted to start to go back to the land that God had promised to their forebears and resettle it. So people are coming back in different waves and they're resettling the promised land that God had given to them. So now we know this is a post exile. We call it a post exilic book. And Haggai is writing then to a post-exilic audience. Who cares? Why is that important? Well, the Jewish people had been promised a life of blessing in the land that God had promised to their forefathers. Under Joshua, they were able to secure that land. They lived there for many centuries but they had a problem. They were spiritual yo-yos. They were up and they were down. They were up and they were down. They were worshiping God. They were worshiping Baal. They were dedicated to God. They were dedicated to sin. So after a series of cycles of rebellion, God permits a pagan king to come and take them into captivity. And in captivity, you could say their time in Babylon was like their hell on earth. It was a godless place. Those that stood firm in their faith experienced lion's dens. You remember that one? Daniel in the lion's den? Fiery furnaces. The temptation to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Threats of death if they didn't bow down to a stupid looking giant statue in the shape of the king. So this was their hell on earth and God was punishing them and when God punishes and judges his people, he does not do it to eternally damn us. He does it to discipline us. Really important. I had someone leave the church once because they said, God doesn't discipline, God doesn't judge his people. I said, yeah, he does. He judges the lost unto damnation, but he judges his own unto discipline so that we might repent and get back on track. So 70 years, they'd been disciplined by God. 
You would think that would be long enough to learn a valuable lesson, but human nature is human nature. They return to the land of Judah. And now we pick up on the circumstances that Haggai had to preach into. So they came back to Judah and thankfully they did not fall back into abject out and out horrid sin. So they were, it wasn't like adultery was a rampant problem or lying or stealing or murder. That, that wasn't their problem. That wasn't their problem. It wasn't anything like super obvious. It was something much more subtle, but perhaps more dangerous. Complacency, self-absorption. They fell into a spiritual slump. They were spending all of their time, I mean all of it, not nine-tenths of it, but all of their time on themselves. They were doing things that you and I might have spent our week doing, building houses, building careers, expanding our families. But they neglected the rebuilding of God's temple. And under the old covenant, God's temple was a place that God manifested his presence and his power in a very pointed and specific place. It wasn't that God wasn't omnipresent, but this is the place that you were to go to worship God. It was, it was his headquarters on earth, one could say. And the people come back and their houses are wrecked and the temple's wrecked and they look at their houses and they look at the temple and they're like, well, get to that. Let's focus on this. So they were pouring their time and energy into rebuilding their horizontal lives. And the, the prophet Haggai comes and he, he calls them to consider our ways, to consider their ways. By the way, Haggai had, unless he was like five years old when he was prophesying this, he would have experienced Babylonian captivity as well. If he was really old, maybe he was in Israel before the captivity, lived through it and came back. Who knows? But minimally, he would have spent quite a few years in Babylon. We don't know a lot about him. We do know that he was a contemporary of Zechariah, kind of a significant figure of post-exile. In Ezra chapter five, verse one, it says, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. It's kind of a little reminder there of who's in charge. So that's the backstory to Haggai. So Haggai's coming and he's gonna offer some instruction as to how to get out of a spiritual slump. So why don't we then spend a little bit of time this morning examining ourselves for signs of spiritual slump? Maybe we're in a little bit of a compromise. Or maybe there's a message here that doesn't directly apply to us, but would be valuable for us to pass on to another Christian who's in a spiritual slump. Or maybe we just need to tuck this message away because in five years we might be in a spiritual slump. And I want to approach this passage by asking us three questions. Now, the questions really aren't dramatically different. They're all sort of the same question reworded, but it'll help us to remember this, I think, if we break it down. So the first question is, as you assess yourself for spiritual compromise, have I, put your name there, so I'm going to say, Aaron, have I, replaced a he mindset with a me mindset? Have I taken my eyes off the vertical life that God wants me to live? And have I become horizontal in my focus? Here's what Haggai says to the people of God. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, this is revelation. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house of mine lies in ruins? We have two worldviews represented in the text. Fallen humanity and a holy God. The holy God, very kindly, not even in a particularly confrontational manner, just asks a question. Why is my temple not being rebuilt and you're building your fancy houses? That's contrasted to sinful humanity, believers actually, who figured it can just wait a little longer, right? So I want to do the right thing, but let's just wait a little longer. By the way, have you ever had that kind of mindset slip into your thinking and kind of make it a little mucked up? Oh, I want to live for the Lord in a little while. I want to give my heart to Christ in a little while. I want to be more selfless in a little while. I want to be more generous in a little while. Eventually, I'll get around to connecting with a biblical church in a little while. I love reading the Bible, just not right now. Give me a little bit, Lord. I'm kind of busy building my paneled house. The Lord speaks to his people directly through prophets. But there's no question about the fact that this is a word from the Lord who is identified at least twice in these opening verses as the Lord of hosts. What is a host? It's an army. The Lord of the armies. What armies? Well, the armies of the heavenly realms, all the angels that he has at his disposal. The Lord of all the earth, in fact. The Lord ultimately has at his disposal every created thing, visible or invisible, to do his bidding. The reason why God is identified this way at the beginning of this book is to remind us of the omnipotence of God, the power of God. He controls and is in charge of absolutely everything. The people were told were living in paneled houses. Back in the 70s, I was a little boy at the time. Remember the paneling? How many of you remember the brown paneled houses? And then it was sort of upgraded to that white grayish paneling, which everyone thought was cool. Now, no offense to you, but if you have a paneled house today, you should call a renovation company and get it upgraded to drywall before you put it up for sale because it will bring the value of your house down because paneling has gone out of style. So normally we think of paneling, we're like "Eh, 1970s mistake. This isn't the kind of paneling that the people of God were installing in their houses. Normally houses would have been made out of what? Stone, because it was plentiful. It's everywhere. If you go to Israel today, there's stone everywhere. Just pick it up and build your house out of it. Or mud bricks. Those are your two basic building options. Even Jesus, when they say Jesus was a carpenter, he was probably more likely a stonemason. That's what a carpenter was back then, not a guy that slung two by fours. But if you had the wherewithal and the money, you could build a paneled house. So you could take sheets of cedar 
and line your house with it. So these weren't just run-of-the-mill, standard, average, hey, we got to get a roof over our heads kind of houses. These were, these were pretty, pretty nice places. These were fancy dwellings that they had invested their time and money in. And the contrast is evident. The houses were going up. They were big ones. They were fancy ones by their standards. The temple was still in ruins. And God looks down on it and he notices there's no urgency whatsoever to rebuild the temple. The problem isn't that they wouldn't have valued it on some level. The problem isn't that they didn't realize it should have been rebuilt. That's not the issue. But there's a priority problem. You can almost hear the excuses going through their minds and coming out of their mouths when Haggai began to preach. Yeah, I I get it, Haggai. Like, we love God too. Of course, we'd like the temple to rebuild, to be rebuilt. But dude, we got fields to plow. Have you seen, seen how many kids I have? I mean, they eat a lot. And we're always being harassed by our enemies. So somebody's got to play the role of the security guard, the sentry, the watchman. Lord, we'd like to build the temple, but we don't have the time. Not to mention the fact, Lord, temples are kind of expensive. I mean, we got houses to build. Temples are kind of expensive. It is interesting how even in the modern world, this obviously isn't a temple, but it's a house dedicated to the service of the Lord. It's a meeting place for God's people. It's here because of ministry. It's an important structure in our neighborhood. It's interesting how even in the modern era, people have this kind of dualistic mindset where a lot of Christians criticize church expansions, church renovations, new church builds. Even when we're building this building, we'd have some very spiritual, pious people in our church. They say things like, why don't we just donate the money to the poor, right? Like as if it has to be an either or. You're like, oh, okay, well, we could do that, but are we gonna meet in January in the parking lot? Like you do realize that people require space. Like if you have 15 kids, you don't rent a one bedroom apartment. If you have 1,200 people in your church, you don't squeeze them into a 250 person gymnasium. Like you, you understand this, right? But there's this dualism that many people bring in even to the life of the church where if, if they buy a nice big fancy house, it's like right on. If their children buy a nice big fancy house, right on. New car, right on. You do well at work, right on. You have a business that's growing, expanding, and you're making money, you're wealthy, right on. So in the private world, it's okay to be wealthy, but God forbid the church actually has modern equipment. I mean, bring back the paneling in the musty old churches with the red velvet pews, right? Because that's the only kind of a church Jesus would have attended. There's this dualism where people are, generous and interested in wealth in their private lives, but they have a completely different set of standards for how the church collectively should operate. And I think we should be, we, we should be ashamed of that kind of a mindset, frankly. Well, this was a problem back then. We have priorities, Lord. 
We have families. We, we got to get the paneling up in the house. We're having guests over. If the temple can wait, I mean, you're everywhere anyway. We can worship you anywhere. The church is not a building. God's not a temple. So we can just meet anywhere. But it pointed to their lack of godly priorities. By the way, if you are evaluating yourself, and you should be, we should always be evaluating ourselves, and you're, you're trying to understand, like, is, is there spiritual compromise potentially slipping into my life? One of the things to look for is a lack of urgency about spiritual matters. That's one of the first signs of spiritual decline. Not, oh, I'm lying a lot or I'm stealing a lot, or I'm lusting a lot. Those come later. Those come down the road. But a lack of urgency for spiritual matters is one of the surest signs that we are on the cusp of a downward demise. And frankly, most Western Christians don't fail for lack of belief in God or a lack of theoretical intellectual assent to the things of God. I mean, they would say, yeah, church is important and evangelism is important and worship is important. And yes, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that's important. And we should be talking about that. But... I'm busy building my paneled house right now, Lord. <laughs> it's for lack of priorities that the Western church has failed even in the moment. Oh, we don't, we don't want to, we don't have any, we don't want to have the insurance company pull our insurance. We don't want the news to get a hold of the fact that we're meeting. Ooh. We don't, want, we don't want to get fired at work. I mean, my boss might think I'm a spiritual wingding. We love you, Lord. I mean, don't, don't get us wrong. We think church is important and worship's important and evangelism is important, but there's a lockdown going on. Or my health is on the line. You know, or I, I'm, I'm, whatever it is, whatever the excuse might be, so we have to ask ourselves as we listen in on Haggai prophesied to the ancient people of God, do I have clearly established priorities in my life in terms of who owns my money, my time, my talents, my treasures, my life, my church, my health? Do we understand this? The world doesn't get that. And largely because of the impact of Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution, Darwinianism is more than just an interesting theory about the origins of human life. It's poison to purpose and culture and worship and a Christian worldview. Why? Because what Darwinian evolution does at its core is it says to humanity, you're not made in the image and likeness of God. There is no future. There is no divine being to whom you will give account. You were born at a particular date and you will die roughly 70 years later, give or take. And this is it. You are a biotic being. That's it. You're the sum total of your biology. Have fun with it. 
Make as much money as you can. Enjoy all the pleasures of life. Have as many relationships as you possibly can. But at the end of the day, you're, you're going to just die. Well, if that's your mindset, then what are you going to do? You're just going to protect at all costs your biotic existence. You're not going to concern yourself with generosity and sacrifice and eternal matters and moral absolutes. All you're going to do is focus on living at all costs. And then the, <laughs> one of the biggest jokes in all of this, that it is those that are desperate, desperate to extend their biological existence here on earth that have the nerve then to draw upon transcendent moral categories and lecture those of us that have a more expansive worldview that we are not sufficiently loving our neighbors. How do you even know what love is if you have no moral categories to legitimately draw from and no source behind those moral categories? So it's all a farce. It's all a farce. But this is the, this is the result of Darwinian evolution, which gives rise to humanism, which gives rise to the technocracy, tyranny, and all the stuff that we're, statism, and all the stuff that we're experiencing in the moment. And many Christians, unfortunately, while they would say, in theory, I reject that worldview. I'm a creationist. I'm a creature. There's a creator. He, can, he created me. They, they believe that with a part of their mind and they pay lip service to it. But the way they live their lives is actually more reflective of a Darwinian evolutionary approach than it is a biblical approach. Because if you look at their priorities and their schedules, it's all about the new house, the new vehicle, the best coffee, the hottest wife, and the 2.5 kids. That's what it's about. And then that is where they pour the lion's share of their time, talents, and treasures. And that's not a Christian worldview. So if that's true of you, Haggai would show up today and he'd, he'd preach the same message. So second question is, am I falling behind because I'm, I've left God behind? This is really important. So let's suppose you're here and you're like, you know what? I, I legitimately am trying to live for the Lord, but... I'm going to work, believe me, I'm a good employee and I just never seem to get ahead. I make a good buck, but for some reason, the bills just always seem to get ahead of the income. I think I'm raising my kids okay, but frankly, they're kind of brats. Do you feel that at times that you're, you feel like on one hand, you're doing the right thing, but you're not really getting ahead? Well, this is, this is gonna make some of us feel a little uncomfortable Haggai actually commends the people of God under the old covenant for doing many good things, but because they'd excluded God, God, the God factor is missing. So they're working hard, they're trying hard, and they continue to fail. And the reason why they're failing is because God is disciplining them. So check this out, verse five and six. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, there's that reference to his omnipotence again, consider your ways... We're told that twice. You have sown much. They're not lazy. They've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, 
but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So we're told to consider our ways. That's also mentioned in verse seven. That means we're to be introspective. We're to meditate upon. We're to reflect upon. We're to evaluate our circumstances. New Year's resolutions come out of reflection, consideration. What was my previous year like? Where did I fail? What do I want to do differently in the coming year? You reflect. Some people just reflect on January 1st. We should be reflecting 365 and one quarter days a year. Always reflecting, always thinking, always evaluating our lives in light of the word of God and asking, is my thinking, my attitude, my actions, are they aligned with the things of God? This is a call for us to consider our ways. God is being very gracious here. He's asking questions. He's inviting us to consider our ways and particularly to focus on how we spend our time. What we have here is not, they're not being rebuked for laziness. No, not being rebuked for laziness. You know, most Christians that I know are not lazy people. There's a few that don't ever seem to have gainful employment. They're not really concerned about it. They, they don't have a schedule. They just kind of get up whenever and go to bed whenever. They're literally frittering their lives away. The precious gift of life, no schedule, no purpose. It's just a waste, essentially. But they're in the minority. The majority of people do what the, old, the people of old did. It says, listen to the verbs that describe their activity. You've sown much, you eat, you drink, you've clothed yourselves, you've earned wages. They understood life's equation, right? What's life's equation? You do, therefore you get. If you work, you get a paycheck. If you scatter seeds, you'll, you'll get a harvest. If you make a meal, you'll be full. If you... If you drink, it'll satisfy your thirst. If you put on clothes, you'll be protected from the elements. Are those bad things? No, not bad things. But somehow they just never, never got ahead. We think that if we do, we'll get ahead. But not if God is displeased. There's the God factor they'd forgotten about. God was judging, God was disciplining them. God was communicating, look, you know, life isn't just about running the, running the plays, folks. You think you're smart? You think you can just run the plays and you do A, B, C, and this is what you get out the other end? No, no, I, I'm also involved in life. It's kind of like when people, um, you know, they go to their accountant, they read financial books and they're like, okay, I, I understand finances now. You have a little chart, you have the income column and you have the expense column. If you're gonna move forward, which column has to be greater than the other? The income column has to be greater than the expense column. And if you just keep running that same play over time, theoretically, you should get ahead. In fact, mathematically, you will get ahead. But if you notice that there's a lot of people that do that and they still don't get ahead because they've forgotten about the God factor. Somehow, when we give sacrificially, even out of our little, God multiplies 
the two fish and five loaves into something beyond what our accountant can possibly understand or we can even make sense of. There's this spiritual principle. You know, we wanna be wise, you know, run the math, have the budget, manage your money well, but there's this faith aspect, this God factor that's overlaid over it all that says, unless God is in it, somehow you'll still be broke. Same with relationships. I interviewed the girl, I interviewed her parents. I kind of prayed about it a little bit. We dated for a year. The pastor said, two thumbs up, we should get married. And somehow it's not working out. (laughs) Well, is God really at the center of your marriage or just one day a week? So there's the God factor. So here we have people that are doing all the right things but they never get ahead. They're never really satisfied. They're never adequately supplied with. And that becomes the excuse. Well, Lord, we can't build the temple. We, you know, now we have a mortgage payment because we built a paneled house, not a brick house. Well, really it's a question of what, what are you gonna invest in? Are you gonna invest in blocks of trash? Unless you're into the recycling business, no. Or are you gonna invest in bricks of gold? things that are proven to be of value. Gold's been mined for seven, six to 7,000 years, we figure. Basically since the beginning. And we know that gold holds its own. We, we know that there are certain things that are worth spending our money on. Well, from a spiritual perspective, you look at life, there's things that are more worth investing our time and energy in than other things. Not the stuff that's gonna be eaten by the moths, the wood, hay, and stubble, but spiritual things. God wants us to invest in spiritual things. Not that we stop working, stop feeding our families and stop tending to our marriages, but God first, everyone else a distant second. So third question is, am I wasting time by serving self rather than God? This is all about reorienting your life. So verse seven and following reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Didn't God just repeat himself there? (laughs) If you're into an economy of words, you're like, why did God repeat himself? How much paper has been used over the centuries? God repeating himself over and over again. That's not good. Good stewardship, you know, too much paper being used to print Bibles and God's repeating himself. Why does God repeat himself? Does he have a stuttering problem? Is he forgetful? God repeats himself to accommodate our forgetfulness and ignorance. And thank God for that. He often says the same thing over and over again, just to remind, remind, remind. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Here's what I want you to do. This is on the heels of all those action words. We sowed, we ate, we drank, we worked. Here's some new actions for you go up to the hills. In other words, just go do it and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. So there we have it. God blew it away. God, you worked for it. I just blew it away. We got all the food. God blew it away. 
I went to school for so long. I got this dream job. How did I lose it? God blew it away. See, oftentimes we blame our circumstances, but it might be God has blown it away. Why declares the Lord of hosts? Here's why. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house, which is parabolic for all of the earthly horizontal pursuits of life. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. So we have God saying in the present, I have blown away that which you've dedicated yourselves to. And by the way, you should know that in the future, I have worst things planned for you. Just warning you, if you're not gonna listen now, I have worst things planned for you. So we are being called by God to consider our ways, to take stock of our lives. How much time, quantify it, this week, did you spend on you instead of him? How much time prettifying your house? How much time pursuing money? How much time fascinated by the newest whatever, television, car, couch, set of clothes? How much time did you spend thinking about the comforts of this world as opposed to that which explicitly brings glory to God. Did you notice, by the way, God's mission in giving this prophetic warning to the people of God? What is the mission of God? Oh, the mission of God is to make my life better. The mission of God is to Remove me from suffering. The mission of God is to restore my liberty and freedom. No. The mission of God, it's going to rattle your cages if you're not vertically minded. The mission of God is actually the glory of God. Do you see verse eight? Why does he want them to get active building his house? Because he has an inferiority complex? Wasn't getting enough attention? No, because God rightfully is owed and can demand that we glorify him, meaning exalt him, put his name in neon lights, make him our priority, pay him homage, worship him, dedicate ourselves to him. This is the, the call of the Christian life. He repeats his observation that their previous efforts to serve themselves had failed. He warns them that God would withhold future blessings and bring about even greater judgment if they persisted in selfishness and rebellion. He reminds them, listen to this folks, the surest way, the surest way to waste your life is to spend it on yourself. That's the surest way to waste your life. Sadly, how many of our cemeteries are chocked full of people who spent their entire lives on themselves and now they're worm food. How many? The majority 
of the cemeteries in our world are filled with people who have wasted the one life that God has given to them. May that not be true of us. God forbid it, that it be true of us, especially those of us that know better because we know the covenantal God who has saved us from our hell on earth, who has redeemed us by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us blessings eternal. May that not be true of us. Now I gotta say there's three things that crossed my mind as I was preparing this. One is without grace, we're gonna fail again and again and again. So we don't want this to be a message in legalism. We need God's grace and mercy and we need to cry out for that to help us to live vertically and not horizontally anymore, to focus on the things that matter. We need his grace and mercy because in our flesh, we are as apt to fall back to building our paneled houses as Israel was after 70 years in their hell on earth. So that's, that's really important. Secondly, because I've witnessed your behavior over the past year, I don't think that this message is directly applicable to very many of you. I think that many of you, in fact, have demonstrated by your bold resolve that you are laying it all on the line for Christ and you're to be commended for that. Thank God for you. You should be encouraged by that. But maybe this is a message you can take and pass on to others who aren't quite there. Maybe in other churches, maybe family and friends that say they love the Lord, but it's not particularly evident. And then the third thing that comes to mind is even if on a macro level, it's not true of us, it probably is true of all of us on a micro level. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for adjustments to be made as we assess our priorities. Even those of us that are, I'm diehard into Jesus. There's probably still some areas where we're just diehard into self. And may God reveal those blind spots to us and by his grace, allow us to surrender and sacrifice those to his sovereign rule as well. So in 2022, let's lean into the vertical life. Live our lives for the honor and glory of the King and to make sure that our time, our talents, our treasures have a kingdom dimension to them all. That we're living large for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And at the end of the day, it's not for self, but it's so that God might receive the glory and the praise.